0: And welcome to episode two hundred and eleven of the Water Space Land podcast. I'm your host Wei Shen, and as usual, I have my favorite co-host with me here today. Hey T, how is it going?
1: It's going great, Wei Shen.
0: (laughs) That's good to hear. Uh, Well, to our loyal listeners, I'm so sorry. We are so sorry that we we didn't put on an episode last week. But to be to be honest, we actually recorded something, but. uh, Uh, we thought it wouldn't be as beneficial you know for you guys to listen to tony and i ramble on about some shit. so yeah. Yeah. this week we actually have a guest for you Thank um God. but we- <laughs> <laughs> yes Wait, before we get into that uh tony do you want to tell us what's happening this week
1: sure this week uh as we previewed previously uh is the start of the innovation exchange for us um it starts on september 9th uh wednesday hopefully this podcast is published on Tuesday before then. Um, but you know, as I said previously, it wasn't our plan to have a virtual summit spread over three weeks in September. That's not what we had in mind for our Q3 and Q4 events. But you know, here we are You know, if I'm being, if we're being frank, it, it does suck because, you know, we'd rather be in person having the events. You know, it, it's a little bit more personal. You, you get to have a little more uh, chat, but you know, it is what it is, and you know, improvise, adapt, and overcome, right? So there are going to be benefits to having the event this way, we hope anyway, uh, if we do it well. The original plan was to have these events run in New York, London, Tokyo, Hong Kong, Sydney, a few other jurisdictions. And if you weren't in one of those cities, you wouldn't have been able to hear the panelists that we have. And we you know, uh, we, we have some really, really good panelists. Um, now you're going to get to hear experts from across the globe share their experience. When it comes to using uh, machine learning everything we talk about machine learning distributed ledger cloud tools incorporating esg data into the us process so you know and because it's a three-week event you know hopefully day on day we're kind of building on what previous panels have said so if we do it right if we do it well it's going to be unique um and we have a couple cool things also uh for the audience shen maybe you can uh, tell a little bit more about that
0: sure so for the Innovation Exchange, we have more than 30 panels uh, and 100 plus speakers, which is uh, not an easy feat to to put together. So thanks, hats off to our event producers uh, Pamela McKay and Annie Wu uh, for doing that. So from Absolutely. the 9th through to the 11th, uh, we'll be focusing on technology and transformation, and then um, from the September from September 14th through to the 16th, we're going to be looking at everything data. Uh, you know, to using uh, from governance consents to using all data, uh, something that all of you, I think, uh, are very interested about. And finally, from the 18th through to the 22nd, we have some senior executives that will be discussing uh, business strategies and how they have been managing their tech teams through the coronavirus pandemic and how that's changing looking forward into the near future. So, while we won't be seeing each other in person during these three weeks, uh, the platform running this event will uh, actually includes a new ma- AI matching tool that enables you to basically connect with uh, our global audience. So mm-hmm. hopefully, you'll be able to carry on these conversations from some of the panels, you know, be- beyond the event. Uh, and also, uh, if you're registered for the Innovation Exchange, all the panels will be available on demand uh, through to the event's conclusion on the twenty-second. So you- I mean, if you do miss a panel because it's say, let's say 4 a.m. Uh, locally, uh, you can watch it at your own convenience until the 22nd. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: so yeah, that's it.
1: Yeah. And if you are an end user, this event's free. Um, you should register anyway. See if you can work out a deal with uh with the people who are setting it up. Um, but it's it's worth just registering getting involved. Um, we want to have as many people as possible. And if you have any questions about it, Shen and myself are more than happy to answer as best we can, whatever question you have or direct you to the right person, um, mm-hmm. enough about that. Uh, you know, Hopefully you're all listening. We're going to have more of it weeks to come. This week, even better, we have a guest. Who we got, Shen?
0: <laughs> right. this week we have Claire Flynn Levy, founder and CEO at Essential Analytics. Uh, who joins the podcast to talk about behavioural bias in fund management. So, Essential Analytics actually provides behavioural data analytics and consulting for investment firms. So, uh, Claire and I talk a little bit about some of uh, those, that, that topic. So, w- without further ado, let's just jump straight to that. Let's get
1: to it, absolutely.
0: Right, this week we have Claire Finn Levy, Founder and CEO at Essential Analytics joining the podcast to talk about behavioural bias in fund management. Hello Claire welcome to the podcast.
2: Hi nice to be here.
0: How are you how's your how's your morning?
2: Great you know not bad for a a end of summer final stretch.
0: (laughs) Has it been really warm over there? We've had kind of a heat wave here in Hong Kong.
2: I'm in uh, Connecticut and it is very humid here but probably not as if i remember the last time i was in hong kong in the summertime that's a different story altogether <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes yes it is um so anyway just before we kick into uh, our our topic of discussion today uh you know just talking a little bit about the background of how uh, you founded Essential Analytics. I mean, you were very much on the buy side, you know, spending five years at Deutsche Asset Management, uh, managing specialist pension funds, and then you spent some time at a few hedge funds. And uh, you know why? Before we jump into our topic for today, uh, please do tell listeners. you know, why? Why did you say, decide to make that change from, you know, the on the on the buy side to more like providing the analytics to them?
2: I, you know, I see it as having gone native in the sense that I was a tech fund manager and uh, always very passionate about technology and how it could be used to make my own life easier. Um, And so I adopted, you know, all the the trading technology as it came onto the market in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, But all of that technology helped you execute trades faster. Um, some of it helped you measure risk. Uh, some of it helped you track your P&L, you know, and some of it helped you uh, do performance attribution, which takes your P&L and then works backwards to figure out where did that come from, you know. Um, mm-hmm. and, and to me, fund management is a game. I mean, I, I don't mean to say that flippantly. It's not, <laughs> it's it's a very, very hard game. Uh, but it is a game in the sense that you need a, a feedback loop in order to be able to continually improve it. Uh, it's a skill-based activity, let's say. Uh, just like tennis, you know, just like any any sport these days, um, you know that, that to get to be the very best at any given sport, you need to have uh, data analytics on exactly what it is that you're doing that's helping and exactly what you're doing that's hurting, you know, and and you need an independent third party to help you understand what the data is saying, cut to the chase and, you know, amend your process. So, you know, if you're Roger Federer He's got a lot of data analytics. he's got a coach. he's got probably multiple coaches. Um, and he's constantly looking in the mirror and reflecting and iterating and improving. and that's how you stay on top for that long. It's not easy to do and and you know the the state of competition in a sport like tennis or any other professional sport at this point is extremely intense, much higher uh, competition than than it was even ten years ago or five years ago, I and mean, it's getting it's getting fiercer and fiercer every day. Um, and I felt the same way about fund management. It wasn't it wasn't at that stage of getting as fierce as it is now. Back then, you know, that when I was looking at this, but um, I really found it troubling that I couldn't see in the data driven mirror exactly what it is that I'm consistently good at so I could do more of that, and what it is that I'm consistently screwing up so I could do less of that. And that's why I set out to build that with Essentia.
0: Okay, okay, that's that's interesting. I mean, yeah, so how did you... Um... Maybe give me a little bit of the background of how you built Essentia and how you actually created that feedback loop that uh, you didn't have while you were actually managing funds. And so you know to be able to learn what is, as you said, have that feedback loop. Uh, know like OK, I this 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 wasn't a really good decision. I should shouldn't be doing this next time, or this was a really good decision. I did this and this and this. You know, give me uh, some example of uh, of how you did that.
2: Um, sure, well, you know, first of all, a fund manager's job is to make decisions, right? And, and some right. proportion of those decisions results in a trade, and you know, some portion does not result in a trade. And, you know, no one's recording those decisions that don't result in a trade. Or if they are, they might be recording it on a piece of paper or in a spreadsheet, you know, as a matter of journaling. Um, but they are recording all of the, the decisions they make that do result in a trade because the trade is, you know, entered into an order management system and it it has a life, uh, a data life that goes on. Um, and that, that's that been the case for decades. So every fund manager has a, a database of every decision that they've made that has resulted in a trade. Um, how they're using that data is – up to them and and most people are not using that data for anything much maybe for the odd one-off analysis exercise Um, but what we set out to do at Essentia is to say let's first let's start by taking all of the historical trades that you've ever done Um, and and the data needs to be accurate so you know we have quite high standards around um, cleanliness and and that sort of thing but um, let's get your data into a a pretty pristine state and let's analyze it and let's see are there uh, patterns in this data around when you make trading decisions or how you you know what happens basically every time you do a certain type of decision in a certain context are there any patterns um, in that and uh, that is mathematical exercise uh that you know find a a bunch of uh really smart people with a lot of domain experience in fund management so therefore people who can do the calculations and people who know which questions to ask and that's you know the really hard part um put that together and you can build a system that makes it possible for you to do this on an ongoing basis but the the key is that most fund managers have at least dabbled with journaling about their ideas and capturing the reasons that they're they're doing what they're doing, um, but they don't necessarily do anything with that data. It's kind of a pain. It's definitely a pain if it's in paper notebooks and if it's in Excel, <laughs> even then it's like mm, there's only so much you can do with it. So what we did was build a, a system that started by analyzing all the data and sort of showing yourself, you know, you're showing you yourself in the mirror and saying, "Okay, here are the patterns that are helping you, and here are the patterns that are hurting you." And then what we do is um, sort of uh, shortcut it so that the the portfolio manager can get those messages and then embed them into their investment process. So you know it's all well and good to get a bunch of analysis about your historical trading behavior. This doesn't mean you're going to change anything, even if it's like really often it says, "Stop doing that. You know, people have habits and 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 the market doesn't stop. You don't get a lot of time to you know step up and think about the shot before it. the ball is coming at you in fund management. It's like constantly all day, every day the ball is coming at you. Uh, And so what we do is say, we're going to just push, we're going to push that piece to you. We're going to ask you questions on an ongoing basis that help you capture the why around your decision making. And as we do that, we can get more and more granular about the patterns that we're detecting in your data. Um, Mm. And it it becomes incredibly valuable to people to have that, that ongoing mirror that gets better and better every time you use it
0: okay well i mean i've i've never personally been a fund manager or you know uh, i mean managing my own funds is another question but um you know uh a lot of times we've heard like the before analytics came about and before we actually had good data analytics or companies had access to uh, maybe even their own data um a lot of trading decisions were actually made from gut feeling right Mm -hmm. and i mean i think a portion of that is still true but now they have analytics to kind of back back that gut feeling up or not is that's correct right
2: exactly yeah yeah Yeah. and to understand if you're if you're able to capture the fact that you're having the gut feeling every time you have it then then we can understand does that gut feeling predict something good or bad (laughs) or nothing maybe it's Mm. noise you know But we sort of get taught, I got taught in my career all the way through, trust your gut, trust your gut. Well, actually, (laughs) that's not necessarily the best advice. In certain situations, it is. Like I have learned that when it comes to meeting somebody and judging somebody's character, I should trust my gut. Um, Mm -hmm. When it comes to making a decision about which way to turn when I walk out of a building on a street that I've never been on before, I've learned not to trust my gut. <laughs> I haven't quite proved that I should do the opposite of my gut yet, but, you know, the, there's a, a mathematical exercise in that. It may be predictive. Um, but the point is that the your gut is not always helpful, but sometimes it is. And if you could distinguish between the times to listen to it and the times not to listen to it, um, yeah, it makes life a lot easier. You, you know, you start getting that much more uh precise and and get things right just ever so slightly more often and it makes a big difference in performance terms
0: okay so what are some of those common patterns that uh, you know uh that you've helped some of your clients identify uh you know are there and and, and you you have a couple of clients, right? So, are there any commonalities between between them in terms of the, the types of biases and patterns that may occur?
2: Well, so yeah, I mean there there are, um, and and we noticed that from working one to one with lots of portfolio managers, you see the same themes crop up, um, and yeah only recently did we do an analysis that looks across all these different portfolios and says okay but but technically are there you know clusters of of similarity do they all get their alpha from doing the same things you know what
0: um, I should make of that, that
2: holds yeah so i mean that that was uh basically looking at six different types of decisions. So a picking decision, entry timing decision, scaling in decisions, adding, trimming, scaling out, exiting, uh, sizing. And uh, we looked at, that's more than six, but anyway, (laughs) we looked at a lot of different types of decisions. Uh, We looked at 24 different contexts. So uh market cap sector day of the week that you made the decision size of the decision there's so many different characteristics of the decision we sort of put that all into a, a mix and say okay where does the alpha come from are there any commonalities here and what we found was the the one thing they all had in common was that uh there is a specific for every single one of these portfolio managers there was a specific decision type and context where they were habitually generating or destroying alpha but there was little commonality between them which kind of makes sense when you think about it just because the buy side think the whole point of the buy side is that you're not doing the same thing as everybody else otherwise you wouldn't be able to make money so I, it's not entirely surprising but um but that said there were little clusters of commonality so the the sort of strongest one that we uh, saw was that um, people tend to, a certain uh, cluster of managers tended to generate alpha from stock picking decisions when we were talking about the decisions where they put the most dollars to work if dollars was their base currency. So it's kind of like saying they made all their their money from their biggest positions, uh, but they weren't their biggest positions for performance because of performance. It was like where did you put your money down? you would hope that people would be making the best returns where they're putting the most capital to work. So this is saying, yeah, you know, for these people that, that is what was happening. So that's great. Um, But what was also interesting was that the same people, when you looked at um, the, the positions in their portfolio where they put some money to work, but not quite as much as the very biggest ones, those ones consistently destroyed value. So they, they were destroying alpha from this sort of second rung of positions that are maybe not quite high enough conviction to get to the, the highest uh, rung of size in, in the portfolio. Um, and that, I think, was very interesting because we do see that in working with certain portfolio managers where they what they've learned from working with us is um, that they... They have a lot of positions they just don't need to hold and that are actually more likely than not to be destroying value in the portfolio than they are adding value. But and and usually they kind of knew that. I mean, it kind of goes back to the concept of active share and, you know, just doing having some some concentrated uh, active alpha bets easily said, but less easily done until you have data in front of you that says, look, you're making all your money out of the place where you're really putting your conviction to work and then these ones where you're like kind of into it, but you don't have full conviction, they're destroying value. So let's help you come up with some criteria for, you know, by which you're going to decide whether a name should be in the portfolio at all. Um, and it might be if my conviction doesn't, you know, meet a greater than X amount, I'm not doing this. Um, mm-hmm. So that that's and, and we're. Uh, we're actually just coming out with a workshop um, all about conviction and helping teams get to the bottom of uh, what do they even mean by conviction? And and do they all mean the same thing? You know, probably not. Um, so anyway, every time we, we identify one of these um, trends, we're able to say, OK, well, but what can we do to help somebody, you know, overcome that pattern? Um, and and that's what's rewarding about you know, what we do. It's not about just like criticizing somebody or showing them analysis that points out all their flaws. It's saying, okay, we see a pattern here. How can we help you mitigate this and make more money You know, as a result? Could you
0: maybe, uh, I know you probably won't be able to name many names, but uh, uh, could you give me a practical example of you know some, where, where you've noticed uh, using your analytics, um, where you've noticed, okay, this is uh, where they're getting all the alpha, they're, they're making their their um, money work for them. And then at the second part, like where you realize that they are destroying alpha.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so we did a, a research uh, paper at the end of last year, I guess, about uh, a pattern that we've noticed uh, amongst a lot of managers so we look at the alpha life cycle, and we say, every every position you add to the portfolio, presumably you're doing that because you wanted it to generate alpha. Over what time period does that typically happen for you, on your names? And what is the what is the sort of growth of the alpha, cumulative alpha generation over time look like? You know, do you make it all in the first week, and then you sit on it for three years after that, and it doesn't do anything else, or is it a slow, steady build? over three years you know or you know I'm making up the time horizons but um, everybody has different patterns in the way that that the positions in their portfolio uh, accumulate and decumulate if that if it does decay alpha over time and what we found was that there's a very common pattern that we call round tripping which is just about uh, making money making you know excess return in the first three quarters of a position's life and then giving it all back and then some in the last quarter of the position's life Um, and that is something that is as I say it's very common it's not you know no one does that all the time obviously or they would not be a fund manager Um, but (laughs) on average that is what people do and what's interesting to us about that is, you know, you, you hear constantly these days about how active fund managers can't outperform passive. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I would argue that's just not true. The average active fund manager has not, perform, uh, has not outperformed passive, may be true. Um, but it's not that they can't, it's that they haven't to date And a big part of the reason why they haven't is this round tripping. So what we found was that uh, the average portfolio manager in the analysis that we were doing, which goes across all our clients, was generating a lot of alpha in the first three quarters of the life of of their positions. Way more than necessary to outperform net of fees um, against a passive fund. But the problem was that they were then giving it back so if you could stop, the, if you could give them a heads up at that point, you know, it's a little bit like staying at a party to the bitter end. Like, you know it gets ugly at 3 a.m. You should not still be there at that hour, you know? <laughs> there's a point in the evening where you take profits and there's a point in the life of a, of a position in your portfolio where you take profits and it can be very hard to see that point naturally. Not least because, and this is where the behavioral bias uh, sort of comes in, we have a tendency to fall in love with the the positions that we own that are doing well. You know, we get to know the management team. We really they do what they say they're going to do. We really trust them. We like this stock, you know, and and for good reason. Like it's all for good reason, except that eventually, it's time to ask for the check. <laughs> it's time to. to <laughs> You know, go home from the party, and we tend to be less observant of the cracks as they start to show on these stocks that have done really well than we might be of something you know where it's not done so well. We haven't it hasn't been such a hero in the portfolio, um, and so we end up not realizing until it's too late that we need to be out of this, and it's it's a tragedy because the amount of alpha that that you give up by doing that, you know. You were so right, and now it's just an embarrassment. Um, no, every fund manager's been through that before, and no one wants to ever do it again. So what we found is, okay, if you could pinpoint this, this sort of historical peak alpha point in a given portfolio manager's positions, it's like to say, you know, therefore always cut your positions at that point, because it, it, it's not as simple as that. Um, but what we're saying is, look, in general, historically, this would have been the right point to ask for the check. Um, so in future, we're gonna give you a heads up when you're at that point and just ask you some questions that'll help you decide what you wanna do next. I'm not gonna tell you what to do, I'm just gonna prompt you to, to use in, in the, you know, there's a book called Thinking Fast and Slow that's very popular amongst the behavioral finance, uh, well, Obviously, that field, but but fund managers who are into behavioral finance, and the idea is you're you're moving a decision that you were making with your system one brain, which was to do nothing. I like this stock; it's going well, um, to a system two brain decision, which is more critical, you know, more, more thinking, not not just like passively going with it, just actually stopping and thinking. Hmm. You know, would I be a buyer of this stock today? If the answer is no, why am I no seller? You know, you know, there are, there are questions one can ask oneself that that help you to sort of challenge your your status quo, um, and maybe you decide from answering those questions that you want to double up on that stock. Fine, but at least you've thought about it hard, and you've you know been deliberate about it. Um, and what we've seen is that when you do that for people, so we we've built, we call this a nudge, this prompt that comes to you and says, okay, here are the stocks you're currently holding that are at that peak point. Here are the questions you said you wanted to ask yourself. Um, people do make better decisions and preserve their alpha off the back of that. And we see it over and over again. I mean, we, we have seen 75% of the portfolio managers who have worked with Essentia for more than a year have improved their annual alpha generation and on average they've done it by 150 basis points a year so a lot of alpha and you know it comes from just making these tweaks using data to reflect and then making little little sort of extra mechanisms to help you do your process the process you said you were doing before it helps
0: but that nudge isn't necessarily, uh, as you as you said that, I mean, it's just a nudge. At the end of the day, the fund managers, uh, the portfolio managers are still the ones deciding what to do with it, whether uh, A, I'm not going to touch it, I'm just going to leave it as is, or B, I'm going to double down or I'm going to sell, what whatever. Um, so is it just the the prompting of uh, or or the the prompt of like asking the questions, kind of like self reflecting, almost like, oh, do I really like this stop uh, today? Do I, uh, you know, is there, should I add more? Should I sell, you know, uh, it's at its alpha peak right now. So does that, is that really the the whole point of it all? Just to question um, that, uh, I I guess that particular, let's say, for example, stock uh, at a particular time?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it's about giving the human the work that the human is good at and the machine the work that the machine is good at. The machine is good at doing all the analysis to figure out when to ask you this question and the human is good at knowing what questions to ask to make the judgment call and then is the human is good at making the judgment call. But if you could... Not make the human spend its energy, you know, doing all the data analysis and, and trying to work up to how do I know when to ask myself this question? Um, that's the beauty of, of machine learning and, you know, AI and, and all the stuff that's going on with this technology. It's it's creating the, the sort of advanced assistant that a fund manager needs to, to not take away the fund manager's job that the that person gets to decide exactly what the assistant is you know notifying them about and what it's asking when it does but it's all about like if my job is just to make the decision I need to know when you know prompt me when I need to make a decision and remind me of how I said I wanted to make this decision and then I'll do it you know and and so it's um it's just about being more efficient for the for the fund manager, um, yeah, okay. I think it's 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 a cool example of that human machine uh, combo that's starting <laughs> to emerge.
0: Uh, well, speaking of machine, um, you know, a, a lot of uh, the buy side are actually uh, you actually use AI to um, augment their decision making. Uh, process, right? Uh, whether that is in stock selection or, um, or or so on. You know, so what happens then? And maybe we're going down the rabbit hole here a bit, but what happens then when, you know, does that then introduce like an AI bias to that whole decision making process? And you know how how then can Essentia um, actually help to perhaps figure out if, I mean, they can figure out there's a bias in, in the human. Part of the decision-making process, but would would it be able to figure out the bias in the AI system that a fund manager might be using?
2: Well, I mean, if you think about it, the so uh, an algorithm that makes investment decisions—it's it's just a proxy for human making investment decisions. It it may make a lot more of those decisions, and it might make smaller ones. You know, it'll behave differently, but. Ultimately it's using some factors and basing its decisions on these factors you know and and that is you, know, you can argue which one makes better decisions it just depends <laughs> you know dep- the algorithms aren't magically excellent. they're only as good as the humans who program them. Um, mm. the the humans that program them are of course capable of programming bias in to them and we've seen that in you know, all sorts of parts of, of life where it's becoming clear that algorithms are biased and is you know causing problems. Hmm. Um, but the uh, some of the bias is on purpose. You know that they might there there are some things that that people are programming into algorithms that would turn up as bias maybe, but that are intentional. But there are other things that that they haven't thought about and they haven't ever ask the question, you know, just like an you know, algorithm on face recognition, um, when they were programming it, programming it, they didn't say, hmm, I wonder if this is going to end up being racist. <laughs> like, mm. they weren't thinking about it that way at the time, and lo and behold, later on, somebody asked the question, is this thing turning out more people of this, you know, color or whatever, than then these? Yes, the answer is, it is biased against you know, some people and and not other people, but you can't know every question to ask at the outset to you know make sure that you mitigate every single bias. So um, it's just as relevant to uh, a quant fund, even a even a super pure quant fund where no human gets involved beyond uh, writing the algorithm in the first place. It still needs to take a step back and look in the mirror you know it might do that itself in a very advanced world but actually the humans who are programming it should be taking a you know doing a little mot or some blood work or or something some check on is this thing doing what we need for it to be doing and is it expressing any biased behavior that in a human would be you know you would want to use an algorithm to get rid of um, but in, in most cases, actually, you don't have an algorithm that just is set it and forget it and it just does its thing. You have humans who are constantly messing with the algorithm or turning it off or turning it back on. And, you know, sometimes you, you have uh, more and more. You, we're seeing fund managers who are fundamental stock pickers, so quite sort of human naturally uh, in their decision making, but that are, are increasingly integrating Quant screens and you know other tools that can help them uh, as as you pointed out before, pick the picking decision, help them with the picking decision and help them um, surface ideas faster um, and, and make decisions between different ideas. Um, but often you also see, you know, so this is a human fund manager who has a quant screen that's giving them, you know, scores of things. It's saying, this thing is a buy because it scores this, this thing's a sell because it scores that. Um, and then on the other side, you probably have human analysts who are also there to do the deeper work. Why is the quant machine saying this? Let's check that. Um, and maybe the human comes back and says, mm, "I disagree with the with the model." Now the fund, the human fund manager has to make a decision: Do I go with the model or do I go with the human analyst? So you know it gets even more complicated. So you want, and and then if you're the fund manager, you want to be able to reflect on. When I go with the human, am I right? Am I wrong? Like, they're making these decisions all the time, but they don't necessarily get feedback on whether they're doing that well or not. And if the answer was, every time you defer to the human, you're wrong. Fine, you know what, fine. <laughs> the PM would just be like, okay, fine. I, I will not do that anymore. You know, But prove to me that that's the case and that that not deferring to the human would have a positive impact on the portfolio. and you know I'll do it Um, okay yeah
0: so um, and and just to wrap up here um, you know so what are the challenges you've seen in fund managers like maybe when they come to considering uh, behavioral analytics and whether they should be adopting that to kind of I I guess reflect on themselves and prove whether they they are making decisions at the right time and at i guess at the right scale or whatever you know all the patterns that that are mentioned and 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 so forth you know what sort of challenges lie there um are uh and and how how i guess moving forward how do you see that changing uh, particularly when it comes to active versus passive management space
2: mhm um well the biggest challenge is fear and and that's the truth. <laughs> there are a lot of people who are who are afraid to look in the mirror and, you know, see proof that they're not perfect. And it's weird. Like, that's just a very natural survival mechanism, right? You know, like, I'd rather not think about all the ways that I'm not perfect also. and And yet, if I want to compete, you know, and if I want to continuously improve – then I need to suck it up and look in the mirror and acknowledge the ways that I'm not perfect and not beat myself up about them because they're just the baseline because now I'm trying to improve. You know, it's like Mm. when you hire a personal trainer and they, you know, squeeze your fat and measure (laughs) measure (laughs) every inch of you. It's not fun that, that part of it. But the point is to set the baseline and then have the ability to measure yourself against it. And uh, there are some people who just are not up for that. And we'll never be up for that. And and in this industry, we've been in a, uh, a sort of habit of not not scrutinizing managers um, beyond the basic performance information that that they supply. So there's a there's a culture of you know uh, bare minimum information. Like you know op- opacity in general in fund management is something that the it's, it's getting better every day. I mean, it's post-financial crisis that has started to change. But historically, before that point, it was all about give away as little information as you possibly can. And therefore, nobody was really, you know, questioning the manager, pushing them that hard on their decision making. And so to suddenly start doing this now, when you've been running money for 30 years, would be a pretty painful thing for a lot of people. And a lot of egos, you know, really couldn't handle that. Um, But at In Fund Management, as in every other industry, um, there's a generational shift going. So you have people who uh, want to compete for the foreseeable. So, you know, don't expect to leave the industry in the next five years. Um, Those people are into this. And then you have all the young people who are you know earlier in their fund management careers who still exist i mean active fund management does still attract uh really smart young people but they're interested in taking it up a level you know and and uh using technology to you know help them in a way that that the previous generation of fund managers we just never even had access to that so couldn't even fathom um so I think that's changing and we are starting to see organizations also change. A lot of, of these firms have you know, turnover at the very top and, uh, and some of these new leaders are saying, how do we drive this business if we don't even have visibility into what we're good at and what we're not good at? You know, how, we need first principles to understand where do we have a competitive advantage Performance wise, I mean, there's marketing wise, there's lots of analysis going on there, but performance wise, do we have a competitive advantage? And if so, where is it and how do we lean into that and not do all the stuff that, you know, we don't really have an advantage of doing that. And they need data analytics for that. Uh, But it's a slow, it's a slow thing. And so it's been, uh, we've we've actually uh, recently come out with a new, uh, product called Essentia Insight Enterprise, which is basically our existing service, but tailored to the needs of uh, larger organizations that have big teams where some of the fund managers would rather die <laughs> than look in the <laughs> mirror like like they just do not want to know. But that's fine. They don't have to do it. You know, the, the packaging of it is such that you can let the people who are into this do it and the people who are not into it don't have to do it and we'll see you know in five years who's who's still there and who's not um have a prediction (laughs) but you know that's cool like i the one thing you learn a lot about in in doing this sort of uh business is human behavior and and vulnerability and like yeah people are imperfect all of us you know so it is what it is we don't <laughs> judge,
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, right, um, and yeah, I, I think it, it, it's it's true that uh, and and this whole uh, idea of like looking in the mirror, it's it's very relatable, <laughs> like to everyday life, even not even uh, not only to how I am, uh, how a fund manager is applying this to their uh, portfolio decisions, um, but yeah in everyday life too so well thank you very much for joining me on the podcast this week Claire I appreciate the time you took to chat with me
2: it was a pleasure thank you